Hey, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. We are here today to talk about DJs and the birth of Scratch and our new favorite word, turntablism. Which sounds painful, but it's not. It's actually pretty good. So uh, to get us started, we're going to have Dan kind of give us a little bit bit of a brief background on the art, I guess. Well, I think it's interesting to note that uh, all of these interviews that you hear throughout our podcasts are all from the NAM Oral History Program, uh, a library that's been collecting video interviews since the year 2000. And somewhere along the way, it was very clear that a segment of our industry, the music products industry, was not really well represented. And that, of course, refers to those folks who have taken a piece of equipment, a a record player in a stereo system, and turned it into a musical instrument. And that, of course, has always been very fascinating to me. I grew up during the early days of hip-hop, and I remember very well the development of this uh, musical style. Uh, late 1970s and early 80s, and uh, always had a very interesting um, draw to the folks behind this concept. And so it was a thrill for me personally to have the opportunity to interview many of those who were sort of first generation, as they proudly call themselves, of uh, DJs and turntablists. Is that the right word? Sounds good to me. Okay, good. So uh, today we're going to feature uh, several of those interviews, and uh, we'll talk about each of them as they come up. But uh, just as a, a, a quick concept, really, uh, this element of hip-hop music that we're talking about today was that um, that came from the Bronx in the late 1970s and developed into utilizing stereo equipment, turntables, and record players to manipulate pre-recorded songs on records to create something completely different. And a lot of folks took a while to figure out that this was actually a musical instrument. They are manipulating sounds, albeit pre-recorded in most cases, uh, but still manipulating them to add a beat, to add a break, to add something completely different. And their own personal styles can come out even though it might be a pre-recorded song and that was a concept that many people may have taken a while to get over but I think what you will hear um, in music history now looking back at some of the contributions of these early pioneers the first generation as I call them uh, is very clear that they did all have a very unique style and personal stamp and um, and they're very compelling people as well. Very entertaining, as Elizabeth pointed out in our discussion earlier this week. Uh, these are showmen and people who are really interested in rocking the party and having fun and getting people to dance. And that was the concept uh, in the Bronx, uh, in the projects. It was very difficult uh, to have uh, access to music education, musical instruments, 
lessons, all of that costs a lot of money and were taken out of this public schools at that time. So here was an opportunity to make your own statement musically and express yourself musically and have fun while you're doing it. It was a social event as much as it was an expression of music. And uh, these are the pioneers. And Dan, do you know, besides the, one we're, the people we're going to hear from today, is there anyone you can think of from the oral history program that if people want to jump on the website, they could check out more of our DJ collection? Certainly. There is a, um, actually a growing number. We're hoping to add to this collection um, in the mon- months ahead. So um, the easiest thing to do is to go to the NAM website and do a search for DJ, uh, DJing. Uh, there's a t- keyword tag underneath all of the guys that we're going to be talking about and girls we're going to be talking about today. So, for example, if you were to type in uh, DJ Jazzy Joyce, At the bottom of her web clip, there is a keyword tag for DJ, and that will give you a full and complete list of all the folks that we've interviewed related to this topic. Awesome. And if you guys out there want to check out that website, it's www.nam.org. And then we're under the oral history tab, the library tab, and then oral history. So definitely do that because there's a lot of fantastic artists out there and DJs out there that uh, we unfortunately won't be able to cover in today's podcast, but it's worth taking a look and taking a listen. Absolutely. And I think that uh, maybe a great way to start today, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the history and how it all got started in, a, in just a minute, but I thought it would be fun to talk about possibly the most famous um, recording that utilizes the scratch. Yeah, and we listened to this. Uh, we jumped online the other day and listened to it and because uh, the title didn't ring a bell with Mike or myself. But as soon as Dan pulled up the song, I I know I'd heard it before. Yeah, same here. So there's a good chance that you know it as well. Um, but it's a song called Rocket, and it's by Herbie Hancock. And so we definitely recommend you getting online, finding a way to listen to that because it is definitely iconic, especially for Scratch. But to give you a little bio on Herbie Hancock, a fantastic guy. Holy cow. Lots of honors. Um, For example, 14-time Grammy Award winner. Yeah, 14. Slightly impressive. Just a little. Just a little. (laughs) Uh, He also has won five MTV Awards, which I guess is, you know, pretty good as well. And uh, in 2013, he was a Kennedy Center Honors recipient, which is a huge deal. That's pretty prestigious, so good for him. He's also an Academy Award winner, and I think probably, to me, probably one of the coolest uh, accolades is that Miles Davis personally sought him out to have him join up with him to make music, which is pretty neat. He's always been very innovative. Uh, One of the things about Herbie that always impressed me, we've interviewed him a couple of times, is that he was never afraid of trying something different. So with Miles, he played the Fender Rhodes when a lot of other people weren't utilizing that musical instrument in jazz. And all throughout his career, he was a pioneer in putting instruments together way before MIDI, for example. Um, And the list goes on and on. So when the opportunity of adding a scratch to one of his recordings came around, he jumped at the chance. And uh, we're very privileged because as part of the oral history program at NAM, we have an interview with Herbie, parts of which we'll hear in a second, as well as that DJ, uh, the uh, gentleman who did the uh, turntable skills on the song Rocket was uh, one of my favorite interviews that we've conducted uh, and grand mixer DJ. DXT, we will be hearing from in a minute as well. 
Yeah, so do we want to go ahead and hear from Herbie and what he's got to say about Rocket? Well, it actually started off with, with Tony Milan, who was uh, actually an employee of mine at, at, at the time. He later became my manager. Um, and Tony Milan had this great gift of being able to kind of find out what was happening underground, what was cutting-edge stuff that was going on. And he introduced me to Bill Laswell and Michael Beinhorn and suggested that, because uh, he already talked to them before he even said anything to me, and he mentioned to them that I was working on a record, and, and his idea was that if I got together with these guys, some new stuff could happen. Anyway, in the meantime, I had heard Buffalo Gals by Malcolm McLaren, and so that was the first time I heard the sound of scratching. And I knew that I wanted to do something with that. And to me, I didn't know anything about hip hop. I didn't know anything about about that culture uh, that was, uh, I guess, pretty much started in New York, uh, uh, in the Bronx, or maybe it was actually started in the Caribbean, you know. Uh, but um, it, to me, it sounded like uh, the kind of thing I would have used with my avant-garde band, which we, which we now call the Mondishi Band. And uh, anyway, when I got together, I finally decided that I would see what Bill Laswell and Michael Beinhorn, who were partners at that time. Not anymore, but they were partners, uh, you know, uh, producer partners. Mm. And um, anyway, they prepared something and then brought it to my studio uh, in L.A., and it had scratching on it. And I said, that's what I want to do, something with scratching on it. Anyway, we wound up fooling around with that and, you know, working on that. And during the middle of that process, I said, okay, I want you guys to do the whole record. Because first, they were just doing that one tune on, 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 uh, uh, on spec. Mm. And, uh, but I was enjoying myself so much, I was stimulated so much that I decided, yeah, let's do the whole record. And that song was Rocket. That was the first one we worked on. And then we finished the uh, Future Shock album from that. So it really began with, with uh, Tony Milan, hmm. who unfortunately is not with us anymore. What keyboard were you playing on that? Uh, uh, a lot of different ones. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, had, uh, uh, I was using, a, uh, I think, a Minimoog on some. I was using a Oberheim. On some, I had a lot of different ones. Uh, I think the solo sound, if I remember correctly, yeah, it was uh, the Oberheim uh, eight voice. Um, I stumbled on something. I moved some knobs a certain way, and I stumbled on this sound, and I, and I haven't been able to duplicate it since. <laughs> but you don't need to. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, th that was one of the main instruments that I worked with at that time. And now let's hear from the DJ that put the scratch on that tune, uh, DJ Grand Mixer DXT. We met with this guy whose Tony name was Tony Milant. Bless him, he passed away. He said, we met this guy, Tony Milant, and Herbie Hancock is looking for tracks and music, you know, for a new project. And uh, we're, we're going to submit some tracks. So, you know, I said, okay, you know. And said, next thing I knew, they, the, you know, they submitted some stuff, and Herbie liked it. I didn't still didn't meet Herbie, nothing. And uh, they said, okay, 
we submitted some stuff and now we're going to intensify it. And so let's come up with some other stuff, some really killer grooves and stuff like that. And so uh, I was with Mr. C, my, 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 one of my best friends, the original Mr. C, don't get it twisted. And so we went out to the studio and Bill and all of us is in there. And I had my own things in my mind of what I wanted to do. And what he said was, he said, man, we want you to do what you do at the Roxy. But I didn't know at the time that they had brought Herbie to the Roxy. I didn't know that. I'm on stage doing my thing. And they brought him in there to say, look what this guy does, man. It's like incredible. And we want to take this and get it on a record. We want to do something with this, what he does. You just let him do what he does, you know? And so they said, okay. And it still didn't mean Herbie, he's gone. He went back to California. And I go in the studio and we start going through stuff. And I had already did a record. And I said, you know what, that's something I'm doing. Let me apply that to this record. It was one of those things. And so I did one of my favorite scratches. I do it with Good Times. I did it at the end of the film Wild Style. And I took that same rhythm but I used one of the records we made was Change the Beat, and I used the sound Fresh from the end of it. And I did my same rhythm, but I changed it up just a little bit to do accents because we started talking about accenting on the record. The way we discussed it, I was doing making accents off of the drums, right? And so I was thinking of that, and so it became more of a, uh, um, an improvisation, and then I can, I can build on it on the improvisation and playing off of the other sounds that I'm hearing. And so I said, let me approach it like that. So I'm thinking Ella Fitzgerald, you know, so I'm going and that's how I'm seeing it, you know. And so because of my music background, I was able to interpret it that way also and then and try to, I mean, actually apply it that way from, from that perspective of, of an improvisation based on the existing elements in the song and trying to find the ones that I want to lock on to, to talk to, to converse with, you know? And so that's how I did it. And when I did it, they all went, that's it! Like Bill pointed at the turntable. They all went, that is it! That is it! It's done. It was really one take. They went, that's it. That's it. And like for me and Mr. C and all of this, that was all day for me. I was like, it. That was the first time they really saw me up close do that. And they went, that's it. And I was like, okay, cool, cool. And then the next thing I knew, um, I went to LA to do a show and uh, Tony Monet called me. And matter of fact, we was, we was me and I, I brought Grandmaster Kaz with me to California. And, you know, a few months went by and, and um, we was there and we were supposed to do the Michael Jackson Beat It video. And the guy came to pick us up too late, so we're furious. Like, we missed out on Michael Jackson Beat It video, right? And me and Kaz. And so um, uh, uh, Herbie called and said he wanted to meet me. So I went to his house and I sat down and we just talking. I bought one of my records and he's like, man, that's really incredible what you did, man. How did you do that? Like, what made you think to do that? And I said, man, I'm, my music background, you know, I just figured if I can, once the whole scratch thing, you know, once that happened, I was thinking, okay, now what can I, else can I do instead of just going doom, zoom, doom, zoom. I mean, everyone was doing the same exact pattern. And so I was thinking, how can I apply my musical background to this? 
And it became apparent that the only way to approach that was through improvisation and understanding the people who, who masters of improvisation. And one of them was Ella Fitzgerald. And so scatting is, an, is, 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 is masterful in improvisation. And so um, that's how I started seeing it, you know. And so um, he, he uh, I, I almost missed my flight. And we, I, he, they took me from Herbie's house to the airport. And then um, I went home. And then I came back to California. And the rocket was mixed. And when I heard it, I was, I was upset. <laughs> I did not like it. I did not understand where it went, and I, did, I was not able to see that far. You know what I'm saying? I, I did not have the tools I needed to understand where they were going with it. So I, 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 it, I was too self-centered at the time to recognize the other elements. I only focused on what I did, and so I did not see the other parts that made it the song, you know, and that was my adolescence at the time, you know, in, in, in understanding production and music. And so it was a great lesson because all of a sudden, you know, people was coming up to me going, wow, that shit was incredible. And I'm mad, you know, like they ruined the song and they went in the wrong direction. And, and, and I, like I said, you know, the, the, the scope of, of, of a master, a genius, which Herbie is, is, is you know, beyond, was beyond me at the time. I had to learn from him that this is where, you know, and Bill, you know, these guys had been doing it, you know, and so finally it, it, I started to understand that, you know, what they, where, where they took it, because I was like, they ruined my song, <laughs> they ruined it, you know, they just messed it up. This was my, gonna be my big thing, you know. And, uh, and it turned out it was my big thing. It turned out to be all of our uh, big thing. And so then um, I got the call. I'm sitting in my house, my phone rings, and they go, D, um, Herbie wants you to play in his band. And I went, no way. No, it's like, D, they, they're put, it's, it's, it's on the table right now. It's in the discussion. They're, they're talking to the record label, working everything out, and you're in the band. They're, you're in the band. It's done already, actually. They just want to know if you want to do it. It's done. And I said, Shh. absolutely, you know. And I, I, there was that fear factor because, okay, they're like, dude, you understand that this is going to be the first time ever done in the history of music, period anywhere on the planet. You are playing with one of the greatest musicians of all time, and you're going to play a turntable in his band, <laughs> you know? And I was like, that sucks. <laughs> you know, I was like, man, I play drums. They were like, we want you to play the turntables. I'm like, man, that really sucks. I really was not. I mean, I was happy, but I was like, man, after all of this, it's turntables that is my big break, you know? And that was in my mind. That was part of my dilemma there, you know? And, and any musician who picks up another uh, instrument and then gets success, finds success from that other instrument, that becomes a dilemma. Damn, I've been doing this, and now, you know? But, I mean, after I saw J.T. Lewis, which I was in material, I was nowhere near as good as a drummer as he was or ever will be, 
you know. I mean, he's just amazing. And so, I, I mean, I, I was happy to be there. I just had these dilemmas within myself, within my soul. Like, man, I'm a drummer and, and turntables. And, and because of all of the flack I was getting, I was starting to buy into it myself. You know, because cats didn't respect that at all. Not the music cats, not the musicians. They didn't respect that. It was like, man, this guy got a DJ in the band, man. That's stupid. Like, what the hell is that? Because they did not understand what I was actually doing. So they all just thought I was just in there playing records. Not realizing that the record never spun one time. Never made one rotation. And all of that sound was happening. And what the record didn't do. And that's what made me stop calling it a turntable. I started to call it a turn fiddle because basically the wax was my bow. You know what I'm saying? And so I was fiddling, you know? And so um, when they actually, when the musicians actually came, because Quincy Jones came to the rehearsal and he pulled up a chair, spun it around, sat it, straddled it, and looked at me and he went, go ahead. Like, he just walked in, just walked in, didn't say nothing to nobody, just walked in, oh, shit, it's Quincy. Everybody went, da 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 He came in, took the chair, spun it around, sat there, and he went, go ahead, man. And Herbie said, don't look at me, play. He said, let's do Rocket. And I was like, okay, we'll do Rocket. And, uh, and then he looked, he watched the whole thing, and he got up, and he bear-hugged me. And he said, man, that's something. He said, you're on to something, man. Don't stop. That's what he said. He said, man, that's something, man. That's very, very, very serious shit you're doing right there, B. It's not what I thought it was. And they all said that. Mm. They said, man, that's something. That's, you're actually playing the turntable. Like you're, you're actually playing the turntable. You're not letting the record play. You're playing the record. And he said, that's not, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, I can't explain it, but you're doing it. And don't stop. And um, it was it was it was incredible. And then after the rehearsal, like it was one day where there was a section of the song, one of the songs that I I co-wrote, and um, Herbie, they were I was late, and when I got there, he said, "Okay, you can ask him. Ask him. He's here. You ask him. What? How does that part go? He wrote the song, and that's when they all went, "Oh, we didn't see." And then. During those tours, each one of them, one by one, would come up to me and go, man, I didn't realize you were that talented and, you know, you were a real musician. Like, I didn't realize that. I said, man, how do you think I got to come up with that approach, man? I'm thinking about this shit, you know? Um, and then all of them finally recognized that, wow, that's, I said, okay, I tell you what, you go over there and do that. Go over there and do it. You know, and then they realized, man, you've got to really practice. It's still about touch. And, 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 and velocity and rhythm and timing, all of that still applies or it won't work. So you have to play it. You have to shed like any other instrument to develop that touch. Because if you got heavy hands, you'll never be able to do that. If, if your rhythm is off, you'll never be able to do it. You know, And it's, it is one of the most intricate techniques that you can do as far as splitting your brain, as far as time is concerned, you know, especially rhythmically, you know, it's because it's, it's almost a percussion instrument at the same time. It, to do that, you have to do both, mm. you know. Um, uh, my whole thing was that I, I, I started thinking melodically as well, 
be a pitch, um, speed, velocity, you know. So I can do a higher note, lower note. I can make it cry, sob, scream, you know what I'm saying? And it was all physical. It wasn't just my fingers. Like one of the things I do that most people never really picked up on is I played a fader like a bass guitar from my bass playing. And so I, I, I use two fingers to play the fader as if I, so I can actually do bass rhythms. You know what I'm saying? The rhythmic part of the strumming mm. I can do on a fader. And that never caught on. You know, I see some people doing the crab and, these, and the spider or whatever they call these new terminologies, but n none of them really uh, uh, translate in time accurately because they're not conscious of that. They're just but they're not conscious of See the difference to that? You know what I'm saying? And so it can be a, a roll, but it can't be a triplet. I can, I think in triplets. That is so cool. I love to listen to that. First of all, that's uh, Grand Mixer DXT, and he is so articulate and obviously very passionate about music. Um, he's very enjoyable to listen to. There's more on our website um, about him and his, uh, in his interview. And he's also, of course, talking about that moment on the Grammy Awards for which he was on stage as a member of Herbie Hancock's band as a DJ. And that was for many of us, including me, sitting at home watching, thinking, wow, there is a musical instrument that I've never seen before. And he treated it like a musical instrument. And probably equally important um, to recognize is that Herbie showcased it as a musical instrument. And here's a big wig that all of us had heard of. If we didn't know exactly all of his uh, musical history, we certainly knew the name Herbie, Herbie Hancock. And so for him to recognize this as a musical instrument on stage in his band on the Grammys was a big deal. And of course, that was uh, probably one of the big highlights of the turntable uh, and its introduction to many, many people. But of course, um, DXT was not the originator of the scratch. Uh, that accolade goes to many people uh, credit uh, another gentleman that we were able to interview as part of the oral history program, Grand Wizard Theodore. So Grand Wizard Theodore is kind of within the community universally accepted as the guy who invented scratch, which is pretty interesting. Um, <clears throat> and we have a clip coming up where he talks about how he went through the process of creating it. And he actually, if I believe, I remember correctly, that he's gonna demo some of his skills so we should be able to hear a scratch as well. Well, how I created the scratch and um, where I created the scratch and where I took in the scratch, um, first thing is that um, when I first became a DJ, I had to um, pretty much uh, say to myself, if I wanna be recognized as a DJ, I pretty much had to do something that nobody else was doing. Now, I'm the kind of person where I would sit down and watch what other DJs do and make sure I don't make the same mistakes because a lot of DJs make the same mistakes. And a lot of DJs don't understand that um, DJing is not only physical, it's also mental too. So um, in, my, in my last year of high school, my principal played music through the loudspeakers in the lunchroom. So when you're in the lunchroom eating your, 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 your fish sticks or your, or, your, or your meatballs or meatballs and stuff like that, you know, my principal was playing this music in the, um, in the loudspeakers and, you know, people pretty much got tired of listening to the music. So a friend of mine that hung out with me every day um, 
asked my principal to let me make a cassette tape. So my principal said, okay, make a cassette tape, I'll listen to it, and then maybe I'll play it. That's just the kind of person he was. So I went home and tried to make the best cassette tape I ever made in my life. Now, in order for us to make a cassette tape back in the early days, we had to take a, um, a big boom box and put it in front of the speaker and press record. That's how we made all of our um, uh, 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 cassette tapes back in the early days. Now, we didn't have the technology that we have today. Um, the way these turntables are here, they, they like in battle style. And um, the way we had it back in the early days, we had a traditional style, which means that the whole, the whole turntable was just uh, facing you in the front. And the mixers that we used looked like big, giant microwaves. So it was like you got one big, giant microwave in the middle, and you got one turntable on that side, and you got the, the mixer in the middle, and then you got the other turntable on the other side. So both turntables were probably like seven, eight feet apart. So it was really crazy. So I went home to try to make the best cassette tape I ever made in my life. So I'm in the house, I'm, you know, I'm grooving to the, you know, to the cassette, cassette tape, and um, the music that we, we practiced on was in my mother's house. And I got the kind of mother where, you know, she doesn't raise her voice, she doesn't argue, she doesn't fuss, she just, she just starts swinging like Mike Tyson. If the dishes ain't done, if the room is not cleaned up, got company in the house, and she said no company in the house, it was crazy. That's the way my mom's was, you know. I love her to death. So I'm in, I'm in the house and I'm, and I'm, and I'm making my cassette tape and I'm grooving and stuff like that. And the music was like really, really loud because I was trying to make the best cassette tape I ever made in my life. So I'm playing this record right here on my right side, and I'm holding the other record um, on my left. And um, I don't know for some strange reason. Um, this particular day, she came and she just bust in the room. And when she bust in the room, that look she had in her eyes, I was like, wow, I'm going to get a black eye before I get to finish my, my cassette tape. So anyway, she looked at me and said, listen, either turn the music down or turn the music off. And I was like, wow. So the technology that we have today is um, our crossfaders go from left to right. Back in the early days, our crossfaders went up and down. So when my mother came in the room and startled me, um, both levers on the turntable went up at the same time, which means that I could hear both records at the same time. So the couple of minutes, which seemed like an eternity, um, her telling me to turn the music down, um, I was actually in the transition of, of um, mixing one record into the other. So I was holding the record and then um, doing a baby scratch. And as I was doing the baby scratch, I was turning the music down. My mom's left the room, I finished my cassette tape, and when I rewind it back and started listening to it, I can actually hear myself baby scratching. And I was like, wow, I can incorporate that into all the other things that I do as a DJ. So I practiced it another couple of days, another couple of hours, you know, different records, you know. It really didn't take me that long because um, as a DJ, um, everything that I did as a DJ was like advancing so much day by day. It's like day by day I found my skills as a DJ getting better and better and better and better. So when it came time for, um, for me to do it in the park, which was 63 Park, um, 
I lived on 169th Street in Boston Road, and we did block parties in um, between 168 and 169 in Boston Road. And when it came to doing the block party, that's when I was able to display the scratch. Now, basically what I did was I took, um, I took your favorite record and just basically took up, up, uh, uh, my favorite part of the record and just kept repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And it just electrified the crowd. The B-Boys started going crazy. Everybody in the park started, started going crazy. Everybody came up to the front of the turntables to try to find out what I was doing. And, and the rest was history. I was 12 years old. It was in 1975. That makes me 22, right? <laughs> so it was, it was just really cool, man, that, that, um, that I was able to uh, make a contribution to, um, to an art form that, that pretty much um, was heard around the world. And I'm very happy to be a part of this, this, this art form, this culture, to be able to contribute something as important as, as the scratch. And I created another style um, called uh, needle dropping. Is when I um, actually take the needle and drop it in certain parts of the record, and the record actually sound like it's looping. And how I created that um, was really crazy because I created the needle drop before I actually created the scratch. And by me doing that, um, once again, my mother, she had a, um, uh, a coffin in the house. It was a coffin slash radio slash television. So when you open up the coffin, you actually see the radio on the turntable. And in the front was, um, was the television. And I used to play the 45s on her, um, on her turntable. And when it got to the break part, I used to skip the break part back, not knowing that I was developing a style called a needle drop. And when I finally got on the turntables, the, um, the, style, was, uh, the style was already there. You know. Do you want to show what the first scratch sounded like and what record you were playing? Yeah, um, I was actually playing um, Bongo Rock. <laughs> I was actually playing with the um, the album Bongo Rock. Bongo Rock is a um, it was actually an album, and um, it was um, it was crazy because. Um, this particular um, Bongo Rock album was like, you could just play any song on the album and it was like, uh, once you play any, uh, any song on the album, it was like, uh, the album, that's how good the album was. So what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna try to um, recreate what I was doing. <laughs> and um, let me see here. And see now, there's so many different versions of this record. <laughs> All right.
So, what I was doing. This was the record I was getting ready to play when I was actually um, uh, when I was actually in the room when my mother busted in the room. So I was playing this record right here, and I was getting ready to mix in this record, which is made by the same group. All you gotta do is just pan a couple of songs and just listen to the record. So when she came in the room. The beat was playing. So I was just baby scratching. <laughs> and when I played my cassette and I got to that part, I was like, wow, what did I do? And it was just, it was right on, it was straight on the beat because cause I try to make sure and visualize people dancing when I'm mixing music. Because if you, you know, you're in the party, you dancing with a girl or whatever, you know, or you b-boying, and the record starts to skip, it, it, it kind of takes you out of the mood. So you want to make sure that you, the music is in a straight line so that when people are dancing or snapping their fingers or clapping their hands, you can make sure that the, the music is in, 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 one, in one straight line. So, um, when I got to the park, that's when I really started to, um, really started to get into the music. All right. <laughs> I think that's a pretty interesting story. Uh, you know, Grand Wizard Theodore gets the credit for the scratch, but maybe the credit goes to his mom. <laughs> uh, or at least the inspiration. The inspiration it. behind it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the other the other part besides the scratch that Grand Wizard Theodore talks about is the needle drop. And uh, while he doesn't necessarily showcase what a needle drop is, one of our other DJs within the collection, DJ Rock and Rob, does demonstrate the needle drop. And um, we thought about including that demonstration into our podcast, but it's just not the same. Yeah, it's totally a visual thing, seeing him cue it up and then the actual drop of the needle. It's, it's something that you just have to see for yourself to really understand how 
cool and how difficult it is to get that perfect. And he and he does it over and over, just perfect every time. Right, right. It's just it's almost like mesmerizing because clearly he knows every nook and cranny of that pe- that record, that piece of vinyl, and to be able to lift up that needle, put it right back down, right where he wants it every time is just fascinating. So if that's something that interests you, which we hope it does, you should jump on to the NAM website and check out DJ Rock and Rob to be able to see that demonstration because there's nothing like it out there. Another interesting point he brought up that was echoed uh, by uh, DXT earlier is the musicianship behind this concept of DJ and turntablism. Uh, there's a lot of thought process. Uh, Johnny Juice, who we're going to hear uh, a little bit later on, uh, also spoke of uh, this amazing concept of musicianship. And I think that's something that uh, is very important to the element of uh, recognizing what these guys were doing, these girls and guys uh, in Brooklyn in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, in creating this new genre of hip hop utilizing turntables. I also wanted to give a a shout out uh, just to clearly recognize there are several people that are not included in this podcast, uh, several of which we still hope to interview, Uh, Mean Gene and Grandmaster Flash, uh, Cool Herc, uh, these pioneers. We'll hear a little bit more about uh, Cool Herc in a bit, really pretty much the, uh, the pioneer of them all. Uh, so I just want to make sure that uh, for those of you keeping score, yes, we totally recognize there are other pioneers, several of which uh, have passed, and sadly we were unable to interview. Shout out to Cowboy, uh, but also some of those others that we're hoping to interview. But I'm also very proud of the fact that we have interviewed so many um, of these, uh, the first generation DJs, including uh, Theodore, who in that clip to me really spells out the very, very beginning of uh, of his technique that has been, of course, emulated by many. And beyond uh, the turntable, another key component, a piece of equipment that is needed for DJing is speakers. Without the speakers, it would be a little fruitless, It'd right? Be hard to hear it without those speakers. That is very accurate. <laughs> kind of important. <laughs> so uh, we have Jazzy J, DJ Jazzy J, talking to us about building speakers, and I just think this is a hilarious story. So Superman, Superman, yeah, yeah, my man Kevin, Kevin Super, or uh, Super, he used to be, he used to be Superman, the, the 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 king of the disco mix back in the days. You tell him that now, he'd be like denying it, but uh, that's when he had the big afro. Now, now he got the inverted afro. And um, uh, me and Superman kind of clicked right from the beginning. I met him through uh, my, my brother, Africa Islam. Me and Islam used to be a, a, you know, a team, tag team back in the days. We had a group called Three the Hard Way. And um, he introduced me to this bizarre looking, I, I didn't know what Superman was. He's a hybrid between either white, Hispanic, uh, black. I didn't know what he was at the time. He had this crazy afro like he belonged in the silvers. And he made these speakers. And I'm like, wow, this, this guy's pretty good. And I was, I was, you know, I'm, I was always into dabbling and working with my hands. And me and him woke up and we kind of had the same interest. So you know what? We can't afford to go and buy GLI speakers or Sherwin Vegas or whatever the deal is. But I think if we take these measurements, you know what I'm saying, we get some glue and some nails and some screws, whatever, we can bang one together. And that was, the, that was, that was our thing. So we started making speakers in his basement. And, you know, we, we mastered so many different uh, forms of voice of the theaters, 
folded horns or folded bass cabinets or little tweeter boxes we used to use, you know, and that was back in the days where everything was separate. You had separate cabinets for bass, separate for mid-range, separate for highs, you know what I'm saying? At one time we were doing four-way, you know, sub-bass, bass, mid-range and highs. So more or less, each cabinet had its own application, its own uh, duty to do. And we would we would just master these cabinets and, and just like go to stores and, and instead of going there to buy, we used to go in there with a tape measure. So it was uh, Richard Long came out with a set of cap uh, set of cabinets called the uh, Earthquakes, uh, and this was like cabinets that you know when they made earthquake and sense around and, and you know when they had the the, the, the speakers behind the, the screen and you feel the whole theater rumbling. These were things that we needed to have. Groups like the Disco Twins and, 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 and um, the Collins Brothers, and they had these speakers, but they was paying like thousands of dollars. No way, form or fashion, we was gonna be able to pay that much money. So you know what we did? We came, got the dimensions, kind of like Jeremiah, whatever we didn't get precisely, we kind of like made up off the top of our head or made a guesstimation. And I built one of these speakers in uh, Superman's basement one day, and not realizing that I had to get I had to get the speaker out, so we built the speaker downstairs, and um, I put the speaker. In. You know, the speaker was huge. Actually, while I was I was inside the speaker building it, while I was building it, you know, got the whole speaker built and everything like that. Kind of threw a threw a, a 18 inch woofer in it, and powered it up. And I'm standing. I, I, so I got an amplifier, got some sounds, pumped it through this thing, and I'm standing in front of the speakers. I'm like. All I hear is just this low-frequency rumble, right? I'm like, damn, I spent all of this time, like a week on this, building this speaker, and this is what I got? Next thing I know, Superman come flying down the stairs. What the hell is wrong with you? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, you goddamn, you just ripped the ceiling out downstairs, upstairs. I'm like, I'm like, this shit ain't even on. He said, ain't on. Go upstairs and look. I go upstairs, the ceiling done fell down, the vibrations done vibrated the whole building and the ceiling, and the ceiling was, it was it was up there, it wasn't up there tight anyway, so it didn't take much to bring it down, it wasn't my fault. Um, and then, you know, that wasn't even the biggest part of it. The craziest part is that, come the day, I'm like, all right, you know what, I wanna use this speaker. We could not get it out the basement. So it was like, I spent all this time, knocked down a ceiling, did all of this, and now I ain't be able to use it because we can't get it out of the basement. Eh, you know, you live and you learn. You know, I told them we got to get bigger doors or, or smaller speakers, and it is what it is. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's, That's a great story. story. <laughs> Builds a speaker, <laughs> knocks the ceiling down, and then can't get that thing out of the basement, so he can't ever use it. <laughs> <laughs> live and learn, I guess. <laughs> yeah, next time when you go in... Uh, Borrow the dimensions from a uh, pre-built speaker that you can't afford. Make sure you measure the door as well <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in your workshop. So that was uh, DJ Jazzy J, who was a uh, original member of Zulu Nation, which was a group that was put together by the next gentleman that we're going to be hearing from, African Bombada, who is really known as the godfather of hip-hop and DJ. Um, and what's really interesting to me about this group uh, the Zulu Nation. It was really uh, put together by African Bombada as a group of artists, um, graphic artists, rappers, b-boys, all these different folks in the Bronx who had some social and political 
um, thoughts that they wanted to uh, project out there. And uh, they got together as a group and really cemented the concept of uniting uh, solidarity, uh, really, which was the inspiration of the name of the, uh, the group, Zulu, based on a movie that Bombada had seen earlier and really embraced the idea that these uh, folks in uh, Africa were united with the same cause and wanted to uh, not be forgotten, but have their messages being heard and utilize many different elements of artistry in order to get that message out. Paintings, um, graphic designs, uh, even graffiti, things like that. So. Um, DJ Jazzy J was a, an original member of this group and really became a spokesperson uh, for many of these concepts. And as you can see, he has a very humorous way of expressing himself. So I think he really added to the cause, um, not only because of the way he could speak, but of course the way he DJed. Yeah, so uh, as Dan mentioned, mentioned, we are going to hear from Africa Bombada, and he's going to talk a lot about his personal style and technique and what he goes through in building a set, because as a DJ, you need a set in order to entertain the crowd and keep everything moving. So My style is basically a mashup of all music to play for the people that comes to see me. Um... I have to feel the vibration of the people. And then you have to know when you can switch up. Because if you're playing hip hop and you might think it's a strict hip hop audience, and you say, Man, I wonder if I could draw a house record on. If their mindset is strictly on hip hop, I wonder if I could sneak in a Calypso record on a techno crowd. You know, I wonder if I could play a salsa record on a house crowd. So you got to know that moment when to draw that certain song in and still keep them on the dance floor with a frenzy. And you also got to know if there's a certain record that makes them say, ah, I'm ready to leave the floor, what certain record to put back on that make them run to the floor. There was a time when I was in Ireland and I was killing them with house and electro and some hip hop and it was time to go. So I figured, you know, play a, a, a heavy metal record and hope that they was going to start leaving. So some was starting to leave, so I said, let me draw on, you know, In the Summertime by Mungo Jerry, just taking them back in the days. When I drew that on, people just ran all back into place. I said, oh, man, then I had to play a whole 60 set for another whole hour. So you never know what people are going to feel the vibe or something. <laughs> then there's another time when I played a rave in Italia, Italy, that, um, it was like a good 60-something DJs. I think it was the 40-something, 40 46 or something. And everybody was playing that same techno beat, boom, 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 boom. And I said, you know what, I'm going to try something different on this audience. So when I played, I started off with um, R.E.M. Losing My Religion, and the whole place just went crazy and started screaming. Then I was playing some more rock, then I jumped into Aretha Franklin, then I might jump into the class. Then I, you know, the place was going, party and everything. Then I brought it right back to the techno for the other DJ could come back and play the techno beat. So yes, um, you got to know the vibration, the frequency of when you're playing your music, how you're playing it, and when to DJ, and what certain set to play for the people. I usually try to stay away from 
everything being so where you can say, oh, he's going to play this song next. Now, we, we, we all have parts where we know certain songs that go with each other that people say, oh, he's getting ready to play that. Yes, we do that, but then we might switch up on something else and come with another groove that, that cuts in between it, and that just messed the person up and say, oh, I thought he was going to play this next, but then we playing another song that they might not heard before. We might play a song that they did heard before. So it's like, um, like I said, you got to feel that vibration of the people. You got to know when to put on this certain song that will either make them lose their mind or another song that would bring them back down to earth and be at peace. Another song that could calm them down. You know, some people might not, if they're playing fast music, they think, like, I better not draw a slow song on. They think the woman and man might not can get together and hug and dance to the slow music. So you even might want to try that. Should I see if they was, you know, dance to some love music? Then you got others that you better not draw that slow regular on that in this day and time. So, so it depends on the audience that you play for. You know, are you playing for youth? Are you playing for um, middle-aged youth? Or are you playing for elders? You know, so you got to know what type of music to play for your different audience. Oh, it was just like um, uh, my brother Stephen Boogie Brown, another producer I work with. Uh, he took sounds of, of, of sneakers when we did the Nike commercial song, Hydraulic Funk, and make the sound of the sneaker become the record and the beat and had it play like Planet Rock, and, and people just went crazy using the sound of the basketball bouncing and stuff. So this became the sound of the record, which made it sound like Planet Rock, and the commercial um, just blew up and got all type of awards. One thing I liked about Africa Bombada's uh, explanation there is he talks about really having to think the mental process between what songs come up next to keep and watching the crowd and feeding off the crowd. Do you want them to dance? Do you want them not? Do you want them to take a break? Do you need them to come back to the dance floor? Like that whole dynamic is something I don't think, unless you're a DJ, you don't really think about. As someone who's listening to the music, you just, oh, this is a great song. I'm going to go back out to the dance floor. But there's so much thought behind it on their end. That's true. And it's very different from other forms of music. Because um, when you're playing in a band, you're usually just focused on the band and you got the set list down and, and you're focusing on your part and playing. Um, so it's kind of a cool perspective to see that a lot of DJing is stage presence and getting the audience involved. And, and their main goal really is just to make sure everyone has a really good time. Um, which is awesome. And I'd imagine in a band setting, you know, a co- traditional band concert type thing, um, those groups go on with, this is the set list. I'm playing this song, then this song, then this song. Whereas a DJ, every audience could be drastically different. And maybe they have a set list that works 90% of the time, but maybe they get that audience that just isn't feeling it. And so they have to really kind of improv and think on their feet. Yeah. And the other thing too is with DJs, it's usually just one guy or girl, um, DJing so they can kind of make that decision in their head like oh okay this the audience is reacting good to this let me just keep going with this and ramp it up some more right um compare that to a band setting it's kind of hard to all of a sudden change the set <laughs> <laughs> mid set if you have a band of like four or five people right um so yeah I think that's a cool part of DJing yeah it makes it it there's a lot more than I think before we sat down to do all this research there's a lot more than I initially anticipated that goes into it before a show or before, uh, you know, a concert or any any type of venue that these guys and girls have is there's just it's so mental, which is something brings us back to what we heard earlier. It's a huge mental 
you know, undertaking. Right. So. Well, and if I could add just a, a few other comments about that, because I think what I would love to have a takeaway from this podcast is a broader understanding of the musicianship that's behind a lot of the concepts. You know, we don't just pick a song and a break and a beat in the song because there's nothing else to do. There's a real thought process. This mixes really, really well with this other song. And this is the reason I've chose that particular beat. You know, there's a lot of thought process as Elizabeth was just saying. And the other thing is, especially with this first generation of folks that we're talking about, there's a lot of respect. There's just a lot of respect because uh, they knew firsthand these guys who created it, like Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash and African Bombada. These guys created this musical genre. So they looked around, they went to a park, they heard them play, and they were inspired by it, and they wanted to take it to the next level. And that became a responsibility, as DXT said earlier. This is something that they really felt compelled to promote and um, and set sort of forth for the future. And I think that that's a really important element of uh, all of these people, including the next DJ that we're going to be talking about, somebody who really impressed me the very first time I saw her. Um, I got to watch her um, do her magic in the Bronx at a, at a, a block party. It's uh, DJ Jazzy Joyce, and uh, she's probably most famous for most of you out there. Back in about 1986, she had a big hit record called It's My Beat that she uh, collaborated with the rapper Sweet Tea and um, was known all, all over the place. Had a big hit, was on MTV, all that. Um, but before that, in fact, way before that, she was in the Bronx like the rest of these guys, uh, just trying to figure out what her technique was and to add her own personal stamp to the art. And um, I'm very proud that we were able to have this interview with her. So we're gonna hear her talk about her first time playing publicly and also uh, practicing before her shows. The first time I ever played in public was um, and where I got paid and everything was at this club called Earth's Edge down in, uh, and then it, the name, it changed to the world later on. But um, I, I was 13 years old and my mother had to escort me to the club because the club owner refused to allow me to be in there unless I was accompanied by an adult because of the alcohol. And uh, Jazzy J was on the bill, Red Alert was on the bill, and I, th I think Bam was on the bill, but I know J and Red were, and I still have the actual flyer. It, I, I have like the poster-sized flyer of that. So I was 13, and that was the first time. And um, thank you, Mom, because I don't know where I would be or what I would be doing if she didn't support me. So shouts to the mothers that support their their children when they take interest in something very young. You know. <laughs> and how long were you practicing behind the scenes? Oh, um, I practiced, I probably practiced about two years before actually um, going to my first gig where I was 13 years old in the club. So prior to that, you know, I was seen in bit, in little places like PAL, park jams and stuff like that and BAM and all and all of them saw me early on and then 
put me on that platform and gave me that opportunity to be in a club for the first time at 13 years old. And really brief, um, recently, I want to say about four years ago, I ran into the owner of the club by accident. Um, he, the person I was with at the time, was admiring his puppy. And he looked at me and he said, Jazzy Joyce? And I was like, yes. And I hadn't cut off all my hair at this point. My hair was still long. And um, he said, you are always a class act. And I looked at him and I was like, who is this guy? And he said, I'm the owner of the club that you played at when you, so that's crazy that um, my character and what I did left a stain on his brain all the way into adulthood. So at that moment, I've done, I've, I've never really thought of myself as someone who's making history, but at that moment I felt proud of myself that, you know, something that I did left a stain on someone's soul to the point where he remembered something about my character when he saw me as an, a, a grown woman years later and still remembered me, so, first time. So that other voice that we heard in that clip there um, was Christy Z, who is a huge advocate for uh, DJs and DJ battling and um, turntabling. And she helped us get some of these interviews and is really just trying to preserve and continue the... Um, the art the form. Art yeah, the form. art form. Yeah, yeah, what am I trying to yeah. say? Yeah, so... And she's a beautiful person. She really is very caring. People really gravitate to her for a good reason. She's got quite a heart. So uh, peace and love to Christy Z. And I, going back to uh, kind of transitioning back to Jazzy, DJ Jazzy Joyce, one thing that I found um, interesting about her little clip there is that it really is like she talks about kind of the, the full circle moment. You know, she talks about this first show she she has at a club at 13 which i mean i could barely get out of bed at 13 yeah, so impressive. um you know that's pretty amazing but then she runs into the club owner years later as an adult um you know well relatively well-established artists everything like that and the guy recognizes her and you know hey like you made i you're always a great woman you know i guess girl at that point but girl and I think that's pretty fantastic and she recognizes that and I think that's really cool yeah it's always it's always cool to see artists uh, that respect their roots and and know where they came from and really appreciate the whole thing yeah and if you want to see um, on her clip on our website DJ Jazzy Joyce's clip on our website she does a lot of demonstration of her skills and her style and it's pretty uh, interesting i think she does an excellent job and so we definitely recommend jumping online to be able to hear some of that content of her djing so we spoke a little bit about watching uh rock and rob's clip and now jazzy joyce how exactly can people view those michael they can go to the nam website at www.nam.org that's nam n a m m .org slash library and then just click on oral history interviews and you will see the 3000 plus interviews that Dan has collected over the years I'm just glad I didn't have to say it for once. You know, I, I, I was I was using what you usually say. Very, you know, I think it came out pretty well. Nice. You did a good job. Da, 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 da. I give you points uh, for originality. <laughs> um, so we're going to hear from 
DJ Johnny Juice about his. He's going to kind of wrap up our segment here about equipment and technique. So let's hear from him about his what he prefers to play on. First of all, somebody asked me one time, a long time ago, I used to write for electronic musician and mix, and they said, what's the most important piece of uh, equipment you have in your studio? And I said, my brain. Uh, I don't care what's put in front of me. Now, when we first started back in the day, this was before like home production studio things, I had, we went to a studio and whatever they had there is what we had to use to do what we did. You know, if they had an Ensonic Mirage, that's what we used. If they had a rack mounted, you know, TX, whatever it was, we had to use that. So, you know, we was always like, oh man, you know, we don't have discs for this, you know, so what? Resample it, you know, so that also kept me sharp with having to know my records. I know my records. I have like 70,000 records. I know them all. I know them by heart. I know the I know everything, like the little things in the print. I know who wrote them. I know what publishing company. I'm, ve I'm like a human Wikipedia. I got to know this stuff, and I, I, I actually love reading liner notes. So that played a huge part in my production process. But my turntables are part of my production unit. It isn't like, all right, I'm going to sample something, and then I'm going to go to the drum machine. And, no, it's, you know, my turntables are here. My, my production setup is here and my keyboards and stuff are here. So it's like a constant, you know, it's like, a, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not synthetic, it's very organic, and it works for me, you know? Because sometimes I'll stop, bam, and come back here. And, and, a lot, and like I said, my scratching is part of my production process, not an afterthought. It's actually a part of it. Matter of fact, a lot of times, the sample is my scratch. So I did this one particular record, um, uh, I did Mandro's fence walk over with Mandro, and we had to replay it, and it sounded great. The guys are still phenomenal, but it sounded way too clean. You know, I like the old version. It sounded so dirty. It was like, ugh, look, ugh, the hell is that? You know, and and they played it like the funk was there, but it wasn't dirty enough. So there's two things I do. I can funnel the output to a speaker, and then I mic it, and then I record that and I sample it, so it sounds like a record, or in this particular case, I took each individual track, horns, bass, drums, whatever, and I scratched them together. And then Chuck rhymed on it with Randall singing. So as far as I'm concerned, oh, he's scratching the original. Because there's so much scratching happened that it sounds like it's the record, but it's not. So, you know, people are like, oh, damn, you know, they gave you credit, you know, permission to use the record. I'm like, no, they actually redid the record, you know, so. Things I do like that sometimes because, you know, it lends itself to that kind of creativity and people say, wow, you know, it's like a DJ record, you know, and it wasn't, but I got to do something. Either that or just scratch on the break part. How predictable, you know what I'm saying? Oh, when I do R&B records, you know, when they're like, when the rapper is supposed to come on, it's like, bam, bam, cue rapper, and, and it's like, nope. They're like, who put the scratchy records on the R&B, uh, you know, scratches on the R&B record? I'm like, me? Uh, hello? You know, now nah, I had to, you know, I have to think, you know, Chuck always taught me, you know, you know when, just when you think something's going to happen in the record, something else got to happen in the record. Being that there's no chord progressions in music anymore, and uh, there's very little movement because everything is super strictly quantized, how do you get around doing that? Well, I try to play everything as, as, uh, as you know, live, or I try to play it as, 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 as an, you know, with an analog feel to it. I, I try to do something different, like, you know, I'll... I'll play a shaker through a whole record, no looping, just, just because the, the timing will be different everywhere. You know, and I know it seems like a little thing, it's not. You'd be surprised when the chorus comes in all of a sudden, 
and it's off a little bit. And that thing gives it a whole different movement because a band's supposed to be different people pushing and pulling to create the sound, what they call the pocket, that doesn't exist because you got everything set to 16th note on your quantize on the drum machine. And it's like, we've lost the feel of music, you know? So at what point do we get it back? You can't sample anymore, so at least the feel used to be replicated by sampling a piece of a band that captured magic in four bars. Now what? So everything I do, if I could play the instrument, playing that shit. Now I might program it initially, just so I could get an arrangement feel, and then once it's done, bass off. Pull on the bass, start playing it. You know, even if I'm whack, I'll, I'll get it eventually. Cause you know, I'm not incredible at bass, but I could play a bass enough to play a song. You know, same thing with, but I'm, I'm nice on the drums, I'll rock it. And you'd be surprised what live drums could do to a, with a beat that's underneath it. Oh man, you know, so. Part of the production process, everything, you know, music is music, you know, including the scratching is music, unless it's an afterthought. I don't like afterthoughts. He makes a point also um, in the concept of premeditated rhythms. You know, as a drummer and a percussionist, uh, Johnny is really forward thinking. So when he gets in front of the turntable, it's not just happenstance. He's really, really methodical in his scratching. And a really good example of that, if you ever have the chance, is a thing on uh, Public Enemy's um, out first album called Rebel Without a Pause. That's Johnny and uh, an amazing piece of work uh, musically. I think we're going to actually hear him talking a little bit about working with Public Enemy later on, but um, that just came to mind in listening to him developing his technique, which is uh, very, very much an influence on many DJs today. Thanks for joining us for part one of DJs and the birth of turntablism. Make sure you join us in two weeks for the conclusion where we're going to be talking about the development of hip hop and current equipment used by a lot of these pioneering DJs. If you like what you've been hearing, make sure you go onto iTunes and give us a five star rating and leave us a positive review, some good feedback. We always love seeing that. If you want to check out more of the content, more of the interviews, go to www.nam.org slash library. Thank you.